our study, and we are going to turn, first of all, to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 in your Bibles this morning. And we're going to look at a, a portion of text first, and then we'll get into or continue our study uh, in the Confession. We're dealing with paragraph 3, and then we're going to touch a little bit on paragraph 4 this morning. But Psalm 3, I want to read the entirety of the psalm. It's just eight verses. Uh, this is a psalm of David, specifically a psalm of David when he was fleeing from Absalom. And uh, so this is a situation where uh, David specifically fleeing from his own son, uh, which uh, there are so many implications in that uh, consequence alone. Beginning there in verse 1 of Psalm 3, Lord, how, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. That expression, of course, is very familiar to believers that salvation is of the Lord or salvation belongeth unto the Lord. When we deal with the matter of salvation, not only in its eternal meaning, but in its temporal meaning, uh, if we are delivered or rescued or saved from a physical situation, we still declare that salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Uh, if I'm delivered from a, an accident or I'm delivered from a, a medical situation or whatever the case may be, if I am in fact delivered from that circumstance in a temporal way, salvation still belongs unto the Lord. Of course, David, as he penned this psalm, he had a number of things in mind. He had a temporal salvation in mind because he's fleeing from Absalom. So there's no question that David, in the context of Psalm 3, was also writing about his temporal deliverance from his son. But he's also declaring this great truth about eternal salvation. Uh, it is accurate to say that every deliverance in our life and the life to come are deliverances from our trouble. We're being delivered from that which ails us. We're being delivered from that which troubles us. And so we owe all of our salvation, all of our eternal life unto Christ. Now that belongs to God. That's why it's declared there, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Uh, it does not give room for salvation to belong to man. It only belongs to God. When we think about eternal salvation, of course, we're talking about how God, uh, before the foundation of the world, resolved to choose men unto himself. Uh, he did that in an everlasting manner. He did not choose one and then unchoose that individual. He chose them, and he also planned out the means in which that chosen one would be delivered. Uh, it was not an act of response when eternal, eternal salvation came, but it was part of the eternal plan. And that's very important that we keep that in mind. So not only did he plan it by this covenant with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also appointed that Christ himself would be the author and the finisher of salvation. 
Christ, as we've learned from our study in the chapter on the mediator, Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who's qualified to save, but it's also he's mighty to save. He is the one who does the saving, and we rejoice in knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord, not to the Lord, and then some to us and some to others. All of it belongs to God. So what happens? The Spirit of God makes man aware of his need of salvation. He brings that man to a place of brokenness. He brings that man to a place of repentance. He brings that man to a place where he knows he needs a Savior. The Spirit works faith in him, brings him to repentance. That man brings salvation uh, by trusting in Christ alone. And we know that Christ is the author and finisher. Man is not saved by his works. So what does that mean? It means the glory of all saving works belong to to God. From the what seems to be the smallest work of salvation to the largest. And there is no small saving work. Even in the temporal realm, there is no such thing as a small saving work with God. So all glory is given to the Father. All glory is given to the Son. Glory given to the Spirit, the Trinity, the three in one, the, the agents and the means in which salvation comes. Now, of course, we've been dealing with the realities of uh, paragraph three, and we've been challenged over the last few weeks with regard to the regeneration and the conversion of infants, and of course, those who are unable to believe. And this morning in that paragraph three today, thinking about this concept of being saved by Christ, we see that there is the expression that we've already dealt with this in some regard, but we want to deal with it a little bit deeper today. Uh, re remember that the paragraph says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. I want to draw our attention to that statement, regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. Everything we just learned in that quick summary of Psalm 3 drives us to the reality that we are in fact saved by Christ at no matter what stage we are, whether we're in the infant stage or we're in the adult stage who is on our deathbed. Uh, there is no salvation apart from Christ. Now again, as we've been learning, we are learning much about the realities of what an infant can and cannot do, uh, some ideas about who the incapable of believing are, but a discussion on the fate or the eternity of infants must also be accounted in the realm of being saved by Christ. In other words, there cannot be a route of salvation for infants or those incapable of belief that is different than being saved by Christ. Now again, we, we tend to think in uh, in, in sections in our, in our spiritual life. And we think being saved by Christ means that there is this outward manifestation of regeneration, of conversion, and the person is brought to this repentance. They believe, they cry out to God, and that's what we get on our mind. The reality is that these elect infants or these infants, these incapable of belief, are not going to be brought to an outward expression of their salvation in Christ. They're not going to be able to verbalize that. The infant's not going to be able to say, I'm saved by Christ. But if we are to say that that infant comes 
to faith any other way but by Christ, we're preaching a false doctrine. Now, again, these are mysterious, deep, uh, and very dark uh, truths sometimes to the human mind. Dark only in the sense that we struggle to understand them and reason them. But what that paragraph is declaring, just like every other person who believes, it's declaring that infants are regenerated by Christ through the Spirit. Now, paragraph 3 varies from paragraph 1 in just a bit. You don't have to turn in your confession, but here's what paragraph 1 says of effectual calling in chapter 10. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, He is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit. Now, notice paragraph 1 mentions by His Word and Spirit. Paragraph 3 only mentions saved through the Spirit. That's not a contradiction. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature. Remember, that's important. Even the infant by nature is in a state of sin. To grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Now, the first paragraph mentions and includes both the Word and Spirit. That is the means in which the Father effectively calls His children to Christ. So it's through the Word and the Spirit. Now, obviously, when we get to the reality of an infant, we get to the position now where we have to consider it only says through the Spirit. That is the means in which is being operational. Now, the call by the Word is a reference to the effectual external call by the Spirit is a reference to the internal call of the Gospel. We have to keep in mind that there is this call that goes out to all to repent and believe. That call's thundering out today. That, that call right now is being thundered out from this pulpit that if you have not repented of your sin and you've not believed on Christ today, the prayer is that, that God in His effectual power will open your eyes, enlighten you to the truth, and you will come to saving knowledge this morning. But there's also the reality of the internal call that's happening. The word is being proclaimed. It is the means in which God is using to draw his own unto himself. But it is that internal call that makes these things effectual. It is what makes man respond to the gospel. So this is not a contradiction, but rather this is these things are going together. Now, what does that mean? It is impossible it's impossible for an infant to respond to the outward call, the external call of the gospel. If I was to go into a nursery and preach the gospel to an infant, that infant is not going to suddenly respond to the external call with, with words and say, I repent and I believe on Jesus Christ. It's just not going to happen. But there is an internal call that is happening. Now again, the acknowledgement of what we're seeing and what we think our mind needs to understand compared to what God is doing is where the problem lies. Now, if we truly believe the statement that David said, salvation belongeth unto the Lord, that means God is operational even in areas and ways we cannot understand. I cannot intellectually arrive at the workings of salvation. You cannot do it with your mind. There are too many holes you have no answer for. There are too many situations where you would say, I just can't come to grips with that. But if we believe what the Bible declares and the book of Jonah declares that salvation is of the Lord, the psalmist here, David, writes, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. 
The absence of an external call of the gospel to infants does not mean that there is not an internal effectual call occurring in the life of that infant. That internal call is nothing less than the voice of God. It's the voice of God that's calling out to a heart that is corrupt and a heart that is in the throes of sin. Again, our mind struggles. How can an infant be guilty of sin? Well, they're guilty because they fell in Adam. They're not guilty of personal transgression, but they are in fact guilty of that sin in which all mankind is born unto. So when we look at this, thinking about this effectual calling, uh, some of you are maybe familiar with uh, the Baptist of old, John Gill. He was the first Baptist to actually write a verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible. And as a side note, it is my absolute favorite commentary of all. If you, if you pin me down and say, what's, the, what's your favorite commentary that you read? It's, it's John Gill. There's no question about it. But he summarized this by simply saying he conceived of God's effectual calling as an internal call, an act of efficacious and irresistible grace. That's how he defined it. He defined that internal call as efficacious, which means it accomplishes what it sets out to do, and irresistible grace. So in infants, just like in all sinners, this is completely a sovereign work of God. Now remember, we started the very first week on chapter 10 and paragraph 3 by stating that the only, the only Bible verse reference was John 3, verses 3 through 8. And remember, we, we stated that it's, it's peculiar that there's only one passage that talks about what happens. And it's this sovereign work of grace. And it's this proof text that we see that the confession only offers John 3, verses 3 through 8 as the sole proof text. In other words, we've studied some passages. We've not come to a conclusion yet of a passage that declares an infant saved or unsaved and how it happens. But what we do see is it underscores and reminds us that the saving of a soul is a monergistic work. It's a single work of God. It's not synergistic. God's not working along with us. If he's working along with us, then it's impossible for an infant to come to salvation. It's, it's, it's impossible. So if this is a monogistic work of God in salvation, then that means there is the absolute necessity. We can't, we can't forget this. There's a necessity of the rebirth. So what was John talking about? What was Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about? He was talking about the need to be born again, a rebirth. So the nature of infant salvation, the third paragraph here, contains this important, really theological uh, assumption and declaration. The nature of infant salvation. Infants dying in infancy are saved by Christ. So folks, here's, here's kind of the conclusion. Infant salvation is still salvation. And it's still an exclusive work by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's still remarkable that salvation. Infant salvation is still salvation. There is one mediator between man or between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 5. One mediator. Nobody is getting to heaven, nobody is getting to glory apart from Jesus Christ. Again, now our, human, our humanity struggles with this. 
But for us to suggest today that infants somehow get into eternity by some other means, by some other manner, instead of or in place of the finished work of Christ, requires us to deny their original guilt that they received from Adam. So the only way you can get around getting to heaven without Christ is to deny original guilt. So you would have to declare that if all infants are saved, apart from something other than Christ, then they all have to have their sin ignored. Now, there are some that take that position. There are some in other denominations and other, actually other Baptists who take the position that all infants are without sin because of what we talked about, the age of accountability. They don't have sin until they're accountable for it. Again, we have no scripture to back that up. But we do have scripture to back up the reality that infants, just like adults, are going to be saved through the finished work of Christ. And if we were to say that infants get there some other way other than through Christ, we deny original guilt, original sin, plus we're disputing the truth of what the gospel declares. If I'm supposed to declare, repent and believe the gospel, the gospel is found and through Jesus Christ. Now, there is, there is dispute, there is argument between Baptists especially, how to even interpret that third paragraph. So this question we started off by asking was that deep question of saying, um, are, is it all infants or is it only elect infants? Remember, we had this big controversy at the beginning of controversial just by, by generality. We, didn't, we weren't fighting as far as I remember. But there was the, this reality of, is it all infants or all infants elect? Should we drop the elect and just leave the infants? And really, the framers of the confession are not really showing their hand as to what they really believed about whether they were elect or non-elect. Even though they say it, they could have been declaring all infants are elect. But the reality is, is they only gave one proof text. They didn't give any of the ones we have reviewed over the last few weeks. They didn't use the one in Samuel about David and, and the son that died with, after the sin with Bathsheba. They only gave John 3, which is the need to be born again. The wind blows where it will. A sovereign act of grace. So if we take the position that infants are born with this original sin, as David wrote that they are conceived in sin, if those facts the Bible declares are true, then we have to come to the inescapable truth that they are condemned under the just law of God and they stand in need of redemption just like everyone else. Now humanity screams out and says, I just can't accept that doctrine. And I understand that. I fully understand the human ramifications of what all this means. But I will, I will tell you this, I find greater hope in realizing there's a sovereign God behind it all, and I'd much rather trust God than trust in what man perpetrates in his mind. I'd rather come to the place where I could stand alone and say, listen, I know that like we learned last week, will the judge of this earth always do right and he will always do right and if he will always do right i may not see it as right but he's not going to do wrong biblically speaking there has never been an account where jesus christ the spirit god the father ever ignored sin where they just said i'm going to overlook it it always was paid for 
Now, to us, salvation is not overlooking your sin. Please don't refer to your salvation as God overlooking your sin. He didn't overlook it. It was paid for with the precious blood of Christ. He didn't look at your sin and turn the other way. Christ paid the penalty for that. It wasn't free to him. It's just free to you. So we have this inescapable truth that everyone stands in need of redemption. Some of you may be familiar with the name Andrew Fuller. He was one of the founders of the Baptist Missionary Society. He said this, he said, there's no difference between us respecting the number or character of those that shall be finally saved. We agree that whoever returns to God by Jesus Christ shall certainly be saved. Through the disobedience of Adam, their federal head, even infants are made sinners. He's just making a declaration of all stand in need of redemption. So we have the nature of infant salvation. Secondly, we have the need of grace. The need of grace in infant salvation is the same as the need of grace needed even in an adult to be saved. Young age does not negate God's righteous judgment. Folks, God must judge sin. He cannot overlook it. He can't just simply emotionally say, I can overlook the sin of anyone. He cannot, it would go against his very nature, it would go against his character. Remember, when we study, we have to remember God's character and nature must be understood. When we start to understand something about God's nature, we know there are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie, and he certainly cannot just ignore judgment that is required. Regardless of what stage of human development, sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins. That includes spiritual and physical. Every single person that's living is going to die. Death is the consequences of sin. Folks, it's the only reason we go through grieving times where we lose loved ones is because of sin. This was not just something God said. I think I'm just, we need to have a way to control the population. I'm not trying to be irreverent today. This was not about food supply. It's not about, we have to have room for people to, we die because of sin. That includes from infants, that includes all the way up to however long God lets us live. Death is the result of sin. And so we are all experiencing that. Until our eyes are open to the truth, we are all spiritually dead. We're all going to physically die even if we've been spiritually born again. Coming to Christ is not going to spare you from physical death, but it's certainly going to promise you an eternity in glory with Christ, which is far. That's not even a, that's not even a descriptive, that's not even the right word. Compared to the alternative of hell. There's, there is nothing more gracious than God offering His salvation. Yet the tragic reality is, and again, humanly speaking, again, emotionally charged, I get this, and I'm, I'm, I'm treading very lightly here. The tragic reality that even infants die is evidence of a fallen world. And it's evidence how pervasive sin is. It doesn't know a boundary, folks. 
We get this idea that sin has a limit where it only can go so far. The reality is sin does not have a limit as to where its consequences lie. You know, sin you commit in your life, you think all the consequences, for example, have been exhausted. You realize you don't know the end of your consequences. I've, I've told you by my, and again, I'm not making this about me, and I'm just telling you there are consequences of sin that I, as a young person, every once in a while I get reminded that there are still some lingering consequences about decisions I made when I was in my teen years. And I'm nowhere near a teenager anymore. The consequences are still felt. There's still things that have, there are still things that have crept into my life that are the direct result of something that I did. Now, God's granted me forgiveness. I've repented of those things, but that doesn't remove the consequences. You set in motion, and what that sin sets in motion, the consequences do not often get removed. Sometimes people only are sorry for sin because they got caught. That's not repentance. That forced repentance that our parents made us do, say, say you're sorry and you didn't mean it, <laughs> that's not repentance. Repentance is being brought to a place where we're completely broken by our sin, not because we did wrong against somebody else, but because we sinned against the holy and righteous God. The only time you're ever going to understand grace is when you're brought to a place of utter brokenness to where you say, I have no other place to go. And the tragic reality is, is that as heart-wrenching as it is, the need for imputed righteousness found and by Christ and eternal life is only found in Christ. And all men fall because of Adam. James Boyce made this comment about Infants and a lack of transgression does not imply innocence. He said the Scriptures plainly assume and declare that God righteously punishes all men, not only for what they do, but for what they are. A corrupt nature makes a condition as truly sinful and guilty and liable to punishment as actual transgressions. Consequently, at the very moment of birth, the presence and possession of such a nature shows that even infant sons of Adam are born under all the penalties which befell their ancestor in the day of his sin. Actual transgression subsequently adds new guilt to guilt already existing, but does not substitute a state of guilt for one of innocence. So the arguments against infant depravity, and again, I've heard these, most of those arguments against infant depravity face the most shocking refusal just by the grave. If, if the infant is not... If the infant is innocent, then there would be no death. It wouldn't happen to an infant. That means it could only happen by some at the age of accountability. You have no biblical answer to that. Because sadly and soberly, and most of us know or are aware, again, I don't want to dwell too long here. I understand the the emotional of this. The graveyards are filled with infants. If there was an age of accountability that we say that no infant would ever die. But infants, sadly, just like us, are just as responsible. So here in this paragraph, as we saw in the sixth chapter of the confession, it states plainly that all sinners are now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, 
and all other misery, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. You say, so why, what does God do with infants? We do not have scripture and verse that will declare that you could say to one individual, God always does this or God always does that. What you can respond with is by saying, but I do know that the judge of the earth will always do right, which is what we talked about last week. And adding to today, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Parents, I get it. I get it. I understand what it is. And you, you pray for your children. You pray for God to open their eyes. You pray for God to make them aware. You understand that salvation belongs to the Lord and you have to trust God in that. And if your kids reach adulthood and they still have not repented and believed, you continue to pray and you continue to to nurture, you continue to warn. Uh, 18 is not the cutoff where you stop praying for your children, stop giving them spiritual counsel. I would expect you and myself to counsel our children even when they're well into adulthood, when we can barely speak. You still keep talking to them about the things of God and that salvation belongs to the Lord. And you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you trust that God will always do what's right. But see, there's that nagging little, but what about that unknown? You will never figure out the unknown. There are people that we declare saved, converted, who are far from it. You declare them that way because they make a loud profession of faith. A loud profession of faith does not equal saving faith. Allowing God, and that's, that, let me rephrase that, you're not allowing God anything. We sometimes falsely pray, God, I'm allowing you to have my child. God... That is God's child. That, that's God's creation. God created them. He's given, given them to you to raise for his honor and for his glory. It changes parenting when you realize that when they hand you that child, that child has been given to you by God, and you have a responsibility to raise that child in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. And we trust that what God is going to do, God always does right. So apart from the liberating grace of God in Christ, we are all the children of wrath, including children themselves. So that brings us to this final part today. It's going to springboard us into paragraph four. The necessity of the effectual call of God in infant salvation. Means this effectual calling may not be the external, but the internal call must be there. Now, when you read into paragraph four, if you've got your confession, you can kind of look with it. We won't cover all of this today. But paragraph three and paragraph four of the confession really could be connected into one paragraph. You see, it says, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Now, we deal in a lot of absolutes in the world, and that phrase drives people crazy. Therefore, cannot be saved. And they said, that's, that's, that's what gets hurled in our direction as preachers of doctrines of grace and standing on these. You're saying there are people that cannot be saved. What I'm saying is, is they're not going to be saved without the working 
of the Spirit and the working of God. That's it. I don't look at anybody in this world, okay? I don't look at anybody in this world, no matter what they've done, and say, you're unsavable. You take me to a prison house. You take me to a federal penitentiary. You take me down to death row. You take me down there. I'm not going to tell them you're unsavable. But what we are declaring, when we declare repent and believe the gospel, we're trusting that there has to be a work of God that's taking place in order for that person to come to Christ. And folks, I'm telling you, when when we quit all of the manipulative gospel that we're trying to accomplish by making people accept it, and we're trying to contort it and twist it and turn it so that somebody says, okay, that sounds like I'll take it now. Playing through 30 verses of an invitation hymn is not going to make that person come to faith in Christ. When that person's eyes are opened and they're brought the gift of faith, it's not going to take a single note of a single hymn. That person's going to respond and they're going to say, Lord, I I repent of my sins. I believe on you alone for my salvation. And they're going to say, you know what? He saved me. The testimony of people who believe in the operation and the sovereign grace of God, they turn all the glory to their salvation by saying, what's your salvation testimony? Christ saved me by his grace. It doesn't have to be prefaced by all the things I did wrong. And all the things that happened, and we all know, we all did a lot of wrong things, and we're still doing wrong things. That's why we're glad to be saved by grace. Because if your salvation was dependent upon once you get saved, don't do any more sin, we're all in a lot of trouble. But we know that's not what he said. So this saved by grace, this being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ. That includes infants. So unless infants are effectually drawn by the Father through the operations of the Spirit, they cannot be saved. It goes on and says, Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, but they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. They take one step further. They said, listen, if you really are effectually drawn by God, your life is going to be different. There's going to be an outward manifestation of what's happened to you. This idea of having someone pray a prayer and then say, look, you punched your ticket is the epitome of dangerous doctrine. You have people that are all over this world who were convinced by somebody that they're saved because they prayed a prayer. That prayer did not save them. There's going to be an outward change. So the power of God is necessary to call sinners, including infants, including the previously mentioned those who are incapable of belief. They must have their hearts liberated, their minds liberated from the bondage of sin. Again, in the world of infancy, this is a difficult concept to grasp. So with respect to the issue of infant salvation, the paragraph underscores even more clearly the power and saving necessity of the Father's effectual call unto Christ. This paragraph is even in force telling us that even adult sinners who hear the gospel, okay, they neither will nor can come to Christ apart from God's drawing grace. So folks, you standing in front of somebody, getting louder and screaming at them 
to repent and believe, you are not accomplishing anything by doing that. Nor are you accomplishing anything by taking the other route. Let me just be soft and tender about this. Let me just lovingly, and again, we ought to be, we ought to speak the truth in love. Why can we speak the truth in love? Because we know truth is truth. And because it's true, I don't have to frame it to fit the audience. There's this idea that God has to work in a different way in different parts of the world. No, just speak the truth in love. God still has to do the work. So by definition, who are the incapable of coming to Christ? Every single one of us. You know, when we start thinking about the people who've never heard, the people in, in deep, dark jungles, we think about the infants, we think about everybody who we think is incapable, you realize that without the grace of God drawing us, we're all incapable. That's why we're left standing saying, I have to give God all the glory for my salvation, and I have no problem giving Him all the glory. I worry about the person that says, yeah, He saved me, but let me tell you, then, let me tell you what I did. No, just give him all the glory for what he's done. Give him all the glory for what's happened. This lack of an external call in the infant no more disqualifies them from the grace of God than an adult sinner's exposure to the preaching of the Word of God qualifies them. Just because you're exposed to the Gospel doesn't mean that you're going to receive it. But like we've said, you ought to hear it every single time the church gathers. You ought to hear the gospel in some form or fashion every time the church gathers. Because nobody makes the assumption that being seated here on a Sunday morning guarantees you that you've been converted. So Christ is the one who is mighty to save. Whether we're talking about the salvation of infants, we're talking about young, younger children, adolescents, Teenagers, adults, the glory of God's sovereign grace and salvation is not diminished with age. In other words, he's, it's just as glorious in the infant as it is in the adult. We somehow get the idea that if he has to save an infant, he really has to do something out of the ordinary. Folks, you realize in order to save my rotten soul, he had to do something more than out of the ordinary. Because this old rotten soul gets reminded every day about how depraved I still am. And how my mind still goes to things it shouldn't go to. How my heart still sets its affections on things. And before I know it, I find myself saying, why am I coveting and lusting after something the world offers me? Why am I still struggling with this? Because as Paul said, it's that battle going on between the old nature and the new nature. And we're going to fight that until the day he calls us home. And if I, if I have to attribute my salvation to any good works that I'm going to do or have done, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Oh, it's, it's amazing to the human mind about the infancy and how, why they should or how they can be, but don't ever get over the fact of what a miraculous marvel it is. That even if you're converted at 90 years old, 80 years old, 50 years old, whatever the case is, it's still a supernatural work. Infant salvation, remember, is nonetheless salvation than the salvation of an adult. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs unto the Lord. Practically speaking, what do we do? 
What do we do for the grieving parent? What do we say to the grieving relative, the friend? How do we give them consolation? How do we give them comfort? The hardest thing, the hardest thing I ever do as a pastor is trying to provide comfort to people. And I'm not talking about just in this area. The only true lasting comfort comes from God alone. I, when I have to go to somebody's side, there's nothing that unnerves me more than trying to bring comfort to people. I find myself without words. I find myself without the right thing to say. I find myself depending too much on me. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? Depending on me to comfort them. Instead of remembering that true comfort only comes from God. True comfort only comes from what God has done. And remember we started today even by talking about that the lasting consolation in this area is not found. And listen carefully, don't, because you're going to hear part of this and you might turn me off. But let me finish before you go there. Lasting consolation is not just simply found in the work of Christ for the infant sinner, but also in the perfection and the greatness of the Son of God Himself. In other words, I can look at the work of Christ and I can say that's the means, but remember, the perfect and great work of the Son of God Himself, who always does things right. We have to, through trials and struggles and afflictions and even areas like this, we have to learn to lift our eyes as undeserving, hell-deserving sinners and look to our Father, as the Scripture says, without a shadow of turning and declare with what even we learned Abraham said as he was discussing righteousness with God Himself. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? Folks, we are not, you are not going to come to a dogmatic conclusion as to Scripture that's going to base and tell you one way or the other how it happens with all infants or what happens. But what conclusion you will come to is part of it will always remain a mystery. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, remember, he didn't even, he didn't even quote unquote witness to him. He told him, the Spirit listeth where it will. And he says, you must be born again. He didn't look at him and say, do you want to be born again now? He said, you must be born again. There's a trusting in the sovereign work of Christ. Where's my comfort found? It's found in the perfection and the greatness of God, but it's also for the church. It's found in the saying that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We say that verse so many times it becomes cliched, but folks realize what he's saying. Yesterday, today, and forever. We ultimately have to trust that God will be God. And that he'll always do what's right, what's just. If you were to call a hundred Baptist pastors and put us into the room, put us in this room, number one, I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> being a Baptist pastor by conviction. That's an inside joke for myself. But when you do that, you are, you are not going to come to an infallible answer regarding infant salvation 
other than the reality that it's got to be a work of, it is a work of God and it's going to be according to his grace. But I imagine that 100, 100 pastors, you'd get some dogmatic answers. I know what happens. You'd hear age of accountability. You'd hear God would never do that. And then you'd hear others that would say, listen, I trust that God's always going to do what's right. Now, human intellectual, that doesn't sound good to us. But these questions invariably always lead us to say, do I truly trust in who God is? And for that matter, do I trust in the Trinity of God? Because remember, it's the entire Trinity that's involved in the saving of a soul. Takes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So, with that next week, we'll look in just briefly into paragraph 4. Most of what we were going to talk about we've already dealt with today, uh, but we're going to stop there for this morning. Okay? All right.